I've just about had enough of you. Affirmative day. I read you. I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Hello, and welcome to 50 Years of Shit Robots with uh, Matt Brown. Hello, and Stephen Murray. Hello. Welcome. If you're just joining us for the first time, Stephen and I are embarking on a journey through robot films between the years 1927 and 1977 and asking the question, were all of the robots in all of those films totally shit? And the answer is, no, not all of them were, actually. Thanks very much for asking. Yes. Some of them are are gorgeous. Some of them are absolutely lovely. Some of them have been a big surprise, haven't they? Mm, Yes, they have, haven't they? Yeah. Do you want to announce the fact that we are still in the top 100 sci-fi of all-time charts, and we are now number 22 in the top 100 geek all-time charts. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Oh, I've just done it. Yeah. Thank you for ev- to everybody for listening and for sharing, and keep keep on going. Maybe we can get a bit further up the old charts. Yeah, lovely. Hang on a sec. I'm just going to say, so top 100 sci-fi films. Podcasts. Yeah. No, no, sci-fi films of all time. Oh, what are they? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just I'm talking to myself. I'm just Googling. <laughs> Okay, uh, so you, I think you're the only person who ever loses their rag with me, <laughs> but I know. <laughs> yeah, I think most people lose their rag with you. So I'm just checking what what we are the equivalent of if we're if we're currently 22. Oh, I see what you're doing. Do you know what I mean? Just for comparison, like what what are we? This is according to the Time Out top 100 film sci-fi films of all time. Do we are we're Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Oh wow! We were That's... almost, which would have been much nicer. Number twenty-three is uh, AI. Oh, that would have been perfect. So yeah, so thanks so much if you've uh, listened or downloaded or recommended us to a friend. Keep on going, and maybe we can get a bit further up that list, which would be brilliant. reached the year 1968 and we've reached the film 2001 and because this feels like a really big deal a big old like it's all it's in lists isn't it 2001 it's in the top 10 top five of the world's greatest films yeah best sci-fi film ever made all this sort of stuff that we thought we'd devote a few episodes to this particular film so Last week, we had a, a deep dive inside the mind of Arthur C. Clarke, which was fun. And this week, we're going to deep dive into the mind of the other sort of lead creator of this film, director Stanley Kubrick. I who, would actually say it's it a good old 50-50 between the two of them. Yeah, it felt, feels like it, doesn't it? That the, yeah. the, the, the creation is impossible without having both of them together doing this. So... Stanley Kubrick is, I mean, an incredibly famous director and an incredibly beloved director as well, isn't he? Yes, very much so. And again, he's in like the top 10, top five of world's greatest directors as well. Yeah. Beloved. So 
Stanley Kubrick. It was born in 1928. I can remember the first time I thought, oh, Stanley Kubrick's quite old, <laughs> which was when, I mean, for me, he was sort of the director of Full Metal Jacket. I suppose that was the, maybe the first time I, I was sort of aware of him because that must have, when was that, 1980, late 80s? 87. 87. So it was a film around the time that I was becoming a, you know, as a teenager and I was in, you know, there was that whole sort of glut of war films, Vietnam films that came out in the sort of mid to late 80s. Were you in London in 87? No, I was in, in Welsh Wales. Okay. I was, yeah, I was in London in 87. Did you go and, and see it, Full Metal Jacket? Um, I didn't really need to because I could hear them filming it because they yeah. filmed it near where I lived. Yeah. It's what well, I think what's weird about that film. I watched it again really recently that film. And I think I mean, it's very much a film of two halves. Mm. You've got the the training half and then you've got the when they they're out in Vietnam half. And I much prefer the training half to the Vietnam half. The bullying half. The bullying half, yeah. But part of it I think is because now I because I know that they shot it in East London, didn't they? All of that mm-hmm. stuff. I can't I sort of can't unsee that when I watch it. I had a similar experience with The Shining because I watched the making of The Shining before I watched The Shining. Right. And it ruined it. <laughs> it really did ruin it. So our first observation about Stanley Kubrick is that his films are very easily ruined by knowing too much about about the behind the scenes. The thing I was going to say was that he had Full Metal Jacket out and then I remember thinking, oh, it's the same guy who did The Shining and it's the same guy who did A Clockwork Orange. And then I remember thinking, my God, he also did, I mean, Spartacus, which for me felt like it was an impossibly old film. Yeah, it's an epic, isn't it? It's it's like a, it's one of the big epics by Ben-Hur. And maybe because he only made, what, maybe a dozen movies in his life, is it? Yeah, he didn't make very many films because he was such a perfectionist. And also he had um, autonomy over the vast majority of them, so he would take time in, in editing and and perfecting. Yeah. He really seems to bridge the old Hollywood and and I suppose like the Hollywood of, you know, the enfant terrible of... Yeah, he um, was. He changed things. Scorsese and yeah. George Lucas and all of that sort of stuff that was happening in the 70s. So he was born in 1928 in New York. So now you've got a nice broad accent that you can do. (laughs) (laughs) Several different Bronx accents. Okay, I'll wait until that needs to be deployed. Um, And the first film that he made was... It's a documentary. uh, Is that Fear and Desire? No, it was a documentary prior to that called Day of the Flight. I think we need to establish that he was a very, very well-respected documentary photographer before this, and he used to also do editorials for Look magazine. He started out uh, working for Look magazine when he was 17. He got his first camera when he was 13. And looking at his photographs, I was blown away. He really? could have been He could have been a magnum photographer. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, it, it just, um, you know, he would do, he would do like, he'd follow a shoeshine boy around. And they were just stunning photographs. And mm. and all of his documentary style, all of his editorials, the photographs he took of Montgomery Clift are incredibly beautiful and telling. 
And you can tell even just by looking at them, those photographs, if you don't know anything about Montgomery Clift, that he was a, a very troubled character. Right. But his photographs of, of Rocky Graciano are stunning. His contribution to filmmaking is stratospheric. But if he, he didn't become a filmmaker, he could rest on his photography. Right. Easily. So he started out then as a photographer. Yes, he did. And uh, then and then graduated or, or then started making documentary uh, films. Documentaries. Yeah, in 1951 he made Day of the Flight, which is the uh, and then he made a f- another one following a doctor around uh, a doctor who flew to his patients because they lived so far away. So he documented that. Right. And he started honing his techniques. He would do things like, uh, instead of getting someone to walk towards the, t- the camera, he'd get them to walk backwards and then do all manners of tricks and things like that. And you could see his honing his technique. So he's making these documentaries when he was in his early 20s. And then he made his first feature film, which was called Fear and Desire. Oh, Have you ever seen that? Budget. No, I haven't. No, I haven't seen that. I think I've seen the next film that was Killer's Kiss, which is a film noir, and I went through a very big film noir phase yeah. in the 80s. Uh, but no, I've never seen Fear and Desire. So you've seen Killer's Kiss? Yes. Yeah. The first film I saw was his third film, which is called The Killing. Which has got some very disturbing mm. scenes in it. I think maybe, I don't know, maybe they're not as disturbing now as they probably once were. I don't remember thinking, being disturbed by it. When did you see it? Like about last last year or... or oh, or, okay. You know. Um, and I watched it because I think I saw maybe Quentin Tarantino saying it was like an amazing film and one of his mm. favourites. And and so I watched it. And it's it's the story of a, a heist, uh, a gang who, who try and rip off a, um, a horse racing sort of scam, isn't it? I tell you who's in it, who's brilliant. He plays... Is it? It's not Salazzo. It's in The Godfather. He plays the uh, the police chief that cuffs Michael in the first film and then is murdered by Michael in the restaurant. I remember the scene in the restaurant. Is that where he goes to the toilet and gets? The That's gun? it. Yeah, and the, and, yeah. The, and the the cop that he that he murders is is the lead in Sterling Hayden. Sterling Hayden, right in the killing, and he's absolutely yeah. brilliant in it. So good, Roger Ebert said that The Killing was Kubrick's first mature feature. Mm, I would say so. Right, okay. So it's it's like it's he's suddenly sort of up and running then with The Killing. He is, but then Hollywood come knocking, don't they? So the, he next did two Hollywood movies, both with Kirk Douglas, Paths of Glory oh, yes. and, uh, in 1957 and then Spartacus in 1960. Have you seen Paths of Glory? Long time ago. I remember it for its tracking shots. Right. Which were unbelievable. God knows how many takes it must have taken because he was famous for retaking, retaking. I've got a quote here from Kirk Douglas because um, they obviously worked together on Paths of Glory and Spartacus and by all accounts they often would clash. Everybody clashed with Kirk Douglas. Yeah. Even violently, though, apparently. When Everybody Kubrick... clashes violently with Kirk Douglas. <laughs> says, uh, when Kubrick attempted to change the ending scene of Spartacus. says, however, Kirk Douglas did have a deep appreciation for the director. He told Variety in 2016, Difficult? Kubrick invented the word, but he was talented, so we had a lot of fights, but I always appreciated his talent. 
There you go. That's, that's what Kirk Douglas thought of working with Stanley Kubrick. But Sp- Spartacus is an extraordinary film, I think. Yes, it is. Okay, it, not it, a film I've seen for a very long time. But it, no, I can remember it though, um, and I haven't seen it for a long time. But I remember it as being incredibly. And I remember the controversies as well of all the bits that were cut out, right? That were put back in again. The man on man action, <laughs> if you can call it that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not even that. It's so funny, isn't it? Again, oh, I know. It's it's is it's like a bathing scene between yes between um, Larry Olivier and Tony Curtis. Yeah, Tony Curtis is his servant. Right, and, uh, he's washing him, and Laurence Olivier asks him whether he prefers snails or oysters. Because <laughs> I mean, I'm getting it. <laughs> but when they when they put that scene back in, Laurence Olivier's dialogue didn't exist anymore, did it? They didn't have his lines. Oh, didn't they? No, so they had to. They had to. They had to get someone to pretend to do an impression of Laurence Olivier. Was it you? It wasn't me, <laughs> but it was somebody very famous. Oh, go on. Anthony Hopkins. Oh, wow. So if you watch Spartacus and you see that scene now, it's Anthony Hopkins doing an impression of Sir Lawrence Olivier. Did he go? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Do you prefer snails or do you prefer oysters with your Chianti? Uh, would you want to try that one more time, please, Anthony, darling? <laughs> <laughs> Bit less of the bit less of the lecture, please. <laughs> <laughs> Do you eat oysters? When I have the master. Do you eat snails? No master. My taste includes both snails and oysters. But that film, Spartacus, does sit very nicely in that sort of pantheon of that of that that sort of Hollywood like blockbuster, doesn't it? Very much so, along with the Ten Commandments and Ben Hur. Yeah. And all of those films, Samson and Delilah. The yeah. uh, the robe. Spartacus won a Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture. The next film he did was Lolita in 1962. I mean, to make a film about Lolita, the Nabokov book, is mm. very, very radical. Was it at the time it was radical, was it? Yeah, the book was, the film was. But it's also uncomfortable. Yeah. Again, was it at the time? It feels very uncomfortable now. No, it was still controversial. It was definitely a controversial film. Mm. How old is the character supposed to be? She's 12. Right. That is pretty young, isn't it? Yeah, that's when he first meets her. I thought we understood no dates. What do you mean, no dates? They just sat down at our table. I don't want you around them. They're nasty-minded boys. Oh, you're a fine one to talk about someone else's mind. Don't avoid the issue. I told you, no dates. He'd done two films with Kirk Douglas, and he was now going to do two two films with Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers is in Lolita. And then his next film was Doctor Strangelove, uh, which got the BAFTA Award for Best Film in 1964. Is he not winning any Oscars up to now? He hasn't, no, he hasn't. I mean, in his whole life, he only won, really won Oscar, didn't he? Which was for special effects. No. Yeah, He, in fact, um, (laughs) sorry, this is such a nerdy thing to know. But he, uh, so this year, the film Godzilla Minus One, is that the film that was out? 
the director is is named on the Oscar nomination for special effects, and it's the first time in fifty years. It's the first time since nineteen sixty eight when Stanley Kubrick won the Oscar for special effects, and was the first, I think the only time that a director has ever been named as the special effects coordinator, effectively. Oh wow! Yeah, that is nerdy. That is nerdy, isn't it? Sorry about that. Sorry about that, everyone. <laughs> No, we're trying, in the geek charts. I think it's allowed now. I'll try to unnerd myself. Um, now, what about this idea about anti-war fil- films? He's, it feels like he's made a lot of films where a lot of war films, but they're all they're they're all anti-war films, really, aren't they? Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's difficult to make an anti-war film. I think it's difficult to make a film that is is. Um, is it is a film that that would rub the Americans up the wrong way? I think it's a a delicate thing, and it's very British as well. In that you know you've got one British actor playing many different parts. Yeah, and the portrayal of the American it's 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 quite it's quite broad, I suppose, isn't it? It is, and it's not very kind. No, it's not. It's got kind of and all. the film's got my favourite joke in it, which I think we have mentioned on this podcast before. Go on. Two characters start fighting. So you gay, autistic, and I said, boy, you're warm, you're warm, I sing for it. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here, this is the war room. Then after Dr. Strangelove, you have 2001, A Space Odyssey. You do indeed. Which we will go in depth with. Yes. <laughs> Massively in depth. <laughs> but this was his first science fiction film, wasn't it? Yeah. And he hated science fiction films. Is that do you think that's right? And wanted, Oh, I don't know whether he did. Wanted, did he? Well I saw something again, it's this is kind of maybe preempting when we talk about the film, but but when Arthur C. Clarke and and he got together, Arthur C. Clarke gave him like a like a, a viewing list of like, you should watch these science fiction films, Stanley. <laughs> <laughs> they were like his favourites, and apparently Kubrick watched one of them, and then vowed to never ever take um, Arthur C. Clarke's advice in films ever again. <laughs> so, what did he watch? I want to know. I can't remember. I'll find out for the next one. He just said it was awful. It was awful, and I and I'm pretty sure that when he wrote first wrote to Arthur C. Clarke to sort of like say, uh, "Would you be interested in collaborating?" He basically said, "No one's ever made a, a really brilliant science fiction film." And I think if he says a remark like that, that'll spur him on. Yeah, and I think if he's the if the cogs start going round and he can put his his great big project which was to make a film about napoleon to one side yes which was a thing that sort of was in his life constantly this film about napoleon uh, if he could put and he, he think to himself well maybe i'm the person who's going to make the world's greatest science fiction film yeah and i think that the kind of researching the man that would probably spur him on I think he would possibly, even like in his war films, he'd, he'd think of a tracking shot in in the, the trenches and think, okay, yeah, I can do that, it'll look great. And then he'd build a film around it. He feels like that kind of guy. He feels like that that would be it. And then as soon as he starts, then the project explodes. Like the Stanley Kubrick archive is owned by 
the University of the Arts London. And I did have a peek, a sneaky peek. And he's got these gorgeous cabinets that look like Dewey Decimal System cabinets. And they're full of notes on everything. And the one for Napoleon is amazing. It should have been made. Mm. It, it really should have. It's so, so detailed. Everything he does is incredibly detailed. There's a um, a really excellent radio documentary, I think, called Kubrick's Boxes, which yes. was made by John Ronson. After Kubrick died, they wanted somebody to go through his <laughs> to go through his garage, essentially, to look, look, you know, I mean, to kind of like look at all his stuff. And there were two brilliant things that came out of it. One, one was that John Ronson realised that he'd got he'd he'd had special packing boxes designed Stanley Kubrick had That's because typical. yeah because because none of the packing boxes that were obviously available were were up to the job but also he talks about going into this library this enormous library in um next to Stanley Kubrick's office at home fl- mm. floor to ceiling um sort of shelves and then John Ronson realizes that every single book is in some way about Napoleon yeah, and it was his Napoleon library that he had sort of amassed uh, in order that he could research pro- properly the the stuff. And I suppose you sort of you know you're thinking about it's a pre-internet age, isn't it? So if you want, if you do want to find stuff out about Napoleon, then you gotta <laughs> you gotta like trawl through through our, you know magazine archives, or you've got to buy lots of books. Yes, you do. Or you watch the silent film, which apparently is an absolute epic in the first time they did split screen. And I'm sure he must have seen that film. Must have done. Must have done. Um, which is an epic. After 2001, uh, he made A Clockwork Orange in 1971. And controversial film. It yeah, was very cold, controversial, wasn't it? It was it was banned in England. Well, didn't he he withdrew it? I think didn't he, he withdrew it, but I think it was on the verge of getting banned. But he started, didn't he get death threats? I think that it was something like that, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, there's a there's a threesome sex scene, and he films it speeded up, right? With almost like you know, like, like Benny, Hill. Benny Hill music <laughs> yeah. in there, and he'll, <laughs> yeah. he'll 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 do things, but. Uh, the sequences where the main character's um, eyes are jammed open and they're having the drops in, and he's he's getting that therapy. Yes. To make him, you know, a, a much better person. It's, it's hideous. It's yeah. Really awful. And Mal- then at the end of the film, they decide that that didn't really work, and it wasn't a good thing to do, and so he could become the person he was before, and just be ultra violent again. Yes. <laughs> Which is really bizarre. Malcolm McDowell who is in Clockwork Orange, says of that scene you just described where Alex is is forced to watch violent films with his eyes clamped open, he says that it was... <laughs> he says that Kubrick had very controlling behaviour when he, he uh, <laughs> made him do that scene. And he said the scene was torture and left him temporarily blinded with scratched corneas. Oh, wow. That's You're giving a lot for your, for your art there, aren't you? You are... Okay, so once he'd made uh, Clockwork Orange, that was withdrawn withdrawn from distribution and then banned, as you say, he then made one of my favourite Kubrick films, Barry Lyndon. Oh, wow. Went to the pictures to see this. Did you? Um, I bet it was amazing to see it at the the cinema. 
It was amazing for the first hour and a half. <laughs> and uh, it is amazing for me now, yeah, knowing what he did, which is use candlelight in the interiors. Yeah. A little a little bit of um a little bit of uh trickery. We did use some reflectors outside for some scenes, and it was amazing to know that. And he used uh, some lenses from NASA, which were supposedly still lenses. Um, well, one particular lens, because they only made this one lens. And um, and it was meant for still photographs, but he adapted it so that he could he could get the most light into the camera. Mm. It was designed to capture the, da- the far side of the moon. The mm. Carl Zeiss Planner 50mm F0. Point seven. Every scene's like a painting. It, it, I just about to say it is, isn't it? It's like yeah. the sort of renaissance ness of the, of the images is extraordinary. He nearly burnt down a couple of um, country manors with the amount of candles he was using. <laughs> Brilliant! Oh. I love all that. Love all that. But it is stunning. It is a stunning film. Yeah, it is really stunning. After Barry Lyndon, he uh, made. The Shining. Yes. I wonder if that is... Do you think that is his, his most successful film, The Shining? Most commercially successful film? Uh, yes, I think it is his most commercially successful, even though Stephen King didn't like it very much. No. And a large chunk of it was refilmed for Ready Player One, the Spielberg film. Isn't there um, a story that it was also... There was footage used in Blade Runner. Yes, at the, the end of Blade Runner. Yes, and it, Runner. I think that I've seen recently seen the, the director's cut, the final director's cut. That's it. Those scenes aren't in because they're quite jarring. Because the whole of Blade Runner is dystopian, raining, dark, uh, and then at the end you see Rachel and De- Rick Decker driving away, and it's beautiful sunshine and gorgeous greenery. Yeah, and those were tracking shots. They were um, helicopter tracking shots of the of the car going or going to the Overlook Hotel. That's right. But I, I've got a memory of Ridley Scott telling a story where he said he ne- he needed like a, a few feet of, of film. And Kubrick said, oh, so I'll send you over the rushes we took. And there was, you know, like a truck, a truck backs in and deposits like <laughs> 57 hours of, of, of rushes. But The Shining, I, I don't find it scary at all. No, I don't either, really. I know. I don't know why people say that it... Uh, I suppose if you kind of... If I was invested in his descent into madness, then I suppose, I don't know. But yeah. he, he he plays it... He he almost plays it for comedy. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? I mean, Nicholson. Yeah. yeah. Even his face at the end, when it's supposed to be horrifying and he's yes. frozen. Was just, just looks grumpy. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and his eyes are rolled into the top of his head as if to say, oh... <laughs> It does look like that. <laughs> I can't imagine that that an actor of his caliber was taking his uh, his acting lessons from on the buses. No, I don't think he was. <laughs> I don't think he was either. But yeah, I know what you mean. I feel that that is a, a much overrated film, The Shining, full of conspiracy theories, right? Go on. 
The conspiracy theory is that, obviously, Stanley Kubrick had something to do with faking the moon landings. Right. We didn't go to the moon. The rocket took off, and it was in orbit around the Earth, and the whole thing was faked yeah. uh, in, in Hollywood. Kubrick shot it, on the, and the people say he shot it on the back of how wonderful everything looked in 2001 Space. And it, the whole <laughs> right. thing was bankrolled by Disney. <laughs> that's, that's the bit I love. And this came out in the 1980s, this this conspiracy no, theory? No, this conspiracy theory came out in 1974 in Bill Kersing's book, We Never Went to the Moon, where he claims that NASA faked it all and that uh, Stanley Kubrick filmed it. And that then it kind of got on. a little bit of a boost in 1971 in Diamonds Are Forever when Bond escapes and runs through uh, a fake moon landing scene. And then Capricorn One comes out, which is a faking uh, Mars mission, which is a brilliant film, by the way. Okay. By the time 1980 came around, when Stanley Kubrick made The Shining, I think he was having a bit of fun by putting the little boy in a, a jumper with Apollo 11 on it. And then the the whole thing with the door number being the distance between the moon and the Earth. What's the door number? The door number is 237. Now... 237 is supposedly 237,000 miles. It's two hundred. It's 238.855 miles. So why would you pick 237 then? Because it's kind of closest. But he, did, <laughs> he didn't. No, surely. No, he go. didn't. He didn't choose it. So yeah. the, the hotel, when they were filming in the hotel in Oregon, they wanted them to change the number of the door in case people didn't want to stay in that room on the back of the film. So uh-huh. he chose 237 because 237 is, in fact, the number that is needed to enter into the computer in Dr. Strangelove in order to begin the nuclear holocaust. Right. It's confirmation bias, isn't it? It's how willing people yeah. are to, to, attribute, or to attribute meaning to anything that fits in with their philosophy but is, uh, I, I compl- will completely ignore any flaws in the, in the, in the logic. I even got a chat GPT to do a timeline of Kubrick's involvement in the moon landing. It's what, quite funny. What did they say? Did they say he wasn't, he, this is made up? That's my impression. Is that how chat GPT talks? Chat GPT. I'm beginning to love your impressions. That's, that's made up. Uh. <laughs> so after The Shining, he made Full Metal Jacket in 1987, which was a film about the Vietnam War. And then in 1999, the last film that he completed, I suppose, Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, which just rekindles all the conspiracy theories again, doesn't it? Of moon landings? No, Illuminati. <laughs> and what? So what are the conspiracy theories that that throws well, up? he died before there was a final cut. And yeah. his final cut apparently was kind of pointing out that certain members high up were involved in kind of orgies and murders and things like that. And the studio apparently cut up, cut all of that out and actually did, did make it, they did cut it and they did make it a much more clumsy film. So the conspiracy theories started all over again, but in a different direction this time. And it's, of course, it, this gets traction with QAnon and all of these conspiracy theories as well, right. which fits in quite nicely with it. And it's a film that I find, I've watched it about three times and um, I find things in it that I really absolutely do love, but I also find things in it that I just find a little bit unsettling. I've never, I've not seen Eyes Wide Shut. 
It's interesting. It really is an interesting film. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Password, sir. For daily. Thank you, sir. Sorry, I've just noticed something on his filmography. It's got so it's got his list of films, yeah. his list of documentary shorts, yeah. and then it's got other, and in in other it's got the spy who loved me. Oh. And it says uncredited lighting design. <laughs> really? Yeah. Apparently Stanley Kubrick assisted with the interior of the villain's massive floating submarine dock in wow. Spy Who Loved Me. It says, production designer Ken Adam and cinematographer Claude Renoir ran into an issue while struggling to light the centrepiece set of the film. So they received God. assistance from Stanley Kubrick. So that's all of his films. And I suppose mm. the thing about them is that they're all really amazing films, aren't they? Yeah, I would say so. I think I could basically sit down and even watch something like Full Metal Jacket, which is not my cup of tea, and I would still enjoy it. Mm. I find Kubrick's films quite cool, not in the sense of fashionable, but in the sense of temperature. Unemo- unemotional, you mean? Or Yeah, 2001 Space Odyssey is enormously, it's, it's chilling on that level. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Oh, it is. But I do have an underlining theory, which we'll talk about when we do. When we do the when film. We do the film. Okay. Um, just a couple of other things about Kubas. Uh, what there's a great. I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But there's a really brilliant little documentary on uh, BBC Sounds, which is called "I Was dot dot dot," and it's a it's a series. And this episode is called "I Was Stanley Kubrick's Assistant." So it's an interview with Anthony Fruin, who became his assistant. I think. Maybe just before two thousand and one, and and was his uh, assistant until Kubrick died. And he also wrote a screenplay which was made into a film where it was about someone imp- trying to impersonate Stanley Kubrick. Oh. I can't remember what the film was called, but it was based on a real life incident which he describes in this. And so he 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 said he was just this really sort of charismatic, energetic sort of brilliant person who who you know really 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 loved being around people and loved getting the best out of people which i thought was was excellent and there's this one story about what that stanley kubrick was obsessed with post-it notes when, yes. they, when they first came out <laughs> <laughs> and he, he wanted anthony Fruin to ask uh 3m if they or would make if they made any different colors or different sizes and eventually after sort of like several weeks of trying to track down the right person, he spoke to this person at 3M. I eventually got through to um, some guy who was chief man on the post-it note totem pole. And the first thing he said to me was, How did you get through to me? You know, this is a guy who'd never spoken to an end user or a member of the public before. So I used Stanley's name. Didn't mean a thing to me. What do you want? Why are you phoning me? I said, well, listen, a very simple question. We're all big fans of your 3x5 pale lemon yellow post-it notes. The question is, what other sizes and what other colours are available? And there was an inordinate long silence and then a big sigh. I thought, what's he going to say? And he said... 
there would be no end to it. <laughs> and I talked to Stanley, and Stanley just burst out laughing. That rather sort of epitomised Stanley, that kind of middle-class English attitude. As Stanley said, uh, an Englishman would rather say no than yes. This guy just absolutely loved him. Wow. Yeah. So, anything else on old Stanley Kubrick? No. That you would like to say? Do you know what? What's what? One thing that I remember um, when I was, if I was, uh, this was so. This would be like mid mid to late nineties. I remember hearing this brilliant. Uh, I remember hearing lots of urban myths about Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. But the one that I most enjoyed was from a, it was from a, a TV director who told me that he'd heard this story. <laughs> <laughs> which was that Stanley Kubrick was renovating his kitchen and he'd got in like an Oscar-winning lighting designer to um, to, <laughs> to install all the lights and had gone round with the lighting designer and said, I, I, like to, I like to chop things here, so can I have a... I need a spotlight coming from here, uh, here. And, and I always thought that was a great story. There's some absolutely adorable footage of him when he was young with his sister dancing and just playing around and they, and they are lovely and you really do get a feeling for him as a, a really nice man and his wife says that you know he, he was he never brought his work home with him and mm. that i can't imagine no i just can't imagine that i can't but he, imagine he, he didn't and his kids said no he was always great he was always lovely he was a dad when he came back he was a dad yeah he wasn't like Stanley Kubrick, obsessive filmmaker. He didn't come back dressed as Napoleon or, no. you know, being uh, inhabiting the part. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, I think I think he's a very. He, he sounds like he was a very lovely, lovely man. Yeah. There's another. There was another story I saw. Maybe it was for on a doc, documentary for. Maybe it was for Eyes Wide Shut, where he got a photographer. He he need he wanted to get a specific look for a front door. And so he got a photographer to, to basically like go around London, like London, all of London, <laughs> taking photographs <laughs> of I've front heard doors. I've story. Yeah. And, and I've seen the photographs that this guy took. And there are thousands of front doors because yeah. yeah. he wanted the right one. And he, in the end, he didn't find it. So he got someone to to design one and, and make it anyway. Didn't he send somebody to New York? He sent someone to New York. To, oh, the story is that he'd send somebody to New York to photograph New York streets so they could recreate them in London. But there, there was one specific door that was missing. That's the story. And so he sent right. him around London. But didn't he send somebody over to New York to get the door? Right, I don't know. I think <laughs> he did. Yeah. It feels it's like a there's level lots of, of that. Yeah, there's yes. lots, lots of that yeah. going on in his life. But I think they're believable. I completely think they're believable. And again, it's like in the world, if you're an obsessive and you want to find out everything about something and it's a world before the internet, there's only one way you can do it really, isn't it? And that's to go and read everything you can, read all the books you can or go and experience it for yourself. He was an avid reader. His library was huge. And he was also uh, an avid chess player. And I think that comes into his work as well. Hmm. I think knowing, I mean, he used to play chess for money when he was younger. Did he? Yeah. Well, have we have we squeezed the pips out of Stanley Kubrick? I think we have. I don't think I've got anything else left. Then no. all we can do is shut the book on Kubas and then watch 2001 A Space Odyssey for next week. The book that's twice as fat because it's got so many post-its in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right, so we're going to watch the film, and we're going to chat about the film next week. And I'm really looking for. I purposely haven't watched it yet. 
Oh, you've never seen it? No, I have seen it. I've seen it a few times, oh, but I haven't yeah. seen it in such a long time. The last time I watched it was I showed it to my students about three weeks ago, and I knew with this generation they just were not going to be able to tolerate it, so I did my own um, voiceover for it. I'd like to have seen, though, what they would have made of it without your commentary. I bet they would have enjoyed it. No, they wouldn't. I know they wouldn't. They they, they would have when it... As soon as Hal started his killing spree, then... I'm receiving you, Dave. I'm sorry, Dave. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Dave. I can't do that. So, join us next week when we start unravelling the mystery of 2001, A Space Odyssey. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.